You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 25th of October 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Daniel Bage. On today's show, Donald Trump is once again, in his way, calling for unity. As part of a larger national effort to bridge our divides and bring people together, the media also has a responsibility to set a civil tone and to stop the endless hostility and constant negative and oftentimes false attacks and stories. Well, spoiler alert, his tone didn't last long. My guests, Joy Ladico and Jonathan Fenby, will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including China's military sends a stern warning to the world about questioning its authority over Taiwan. This just days after the U.S. sent ships through the Taiwan Strait. Google has dropped its plans to open an incubator in Berlin's Kreuzberg neighborhood after local opposition. Can gentrification then be slowed? And how can tech giants have a positive impact? And are music festivals becoming too prudish? That's all to come on Midori House with me, Daniel Bache. Welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Joy Ladico, columnist for the London Evening Standard, and Jonathan Fenby, chairman of China Research and director of European political research at TS Lombard. Welcome both to the program and back to studio. Uh, we have to unify. Those are Donald Trump's words in the wake of bomb scares targeting high-profile Democrats and prominent supporters across the U.S. And shortly after yet another call for unity, just like after major tragedies and mass shootings before, Trump changed his tune, placing the blame on the mainstream media and fake news. Never one to take advice, even his own advice, it seems. Trump did not, of course, mention on Twitter that his favorite target, CNN, was itself a target of a bomb scare uh, yesterday. Joy, the president isn't making uh, things any better today, is he? Well, he's not making a great deal of sense if you uh, take the track history of how he's spoken about his opponents along the way. Uh, There's a wonderful quote from today, which is, those engaged in the political arena must stop treating political opponents as being morally defective, Mm. said Trump. Now, the giveaway that he hasn't written this line is it's multi-syllable complex words for a start, (laughs) and somebody else has scripted it for him. Uh, And his his sort of set of attacks on Obama, on Hillary Clinton, uh, on CNN, uh, have been consistent and high level all the way through. And what has happened is that somebody somewhere has felt activated and also activated to do something and also feels that perhaps they may have some Mm. sort of cover. Uh, Now, this is obviously a deranged mind, whoever's posting it. But when the president is speaking so vitriolically about these people, you begin to think, well, actually, maybe the the authorities will uh, fall into line with him Mm. rather rather than them. Much of his rhetoric coming at uh, these pre-midterm rallies as well, these campaign-style rallies he likes to hold, uh, where journalists in the room are often blamed uh, for all uh, Trump and America's woes. In many cases, uh, it's not safe for them, is it? No, it's not. And I mean, this is very rich indeed coming from Trump. We're used to this kind of thing uh, from him. But uh, given his track record for vituperation against, I mean, first of all, against Hillary Clinton, lock her up, etc., etc., and then against the media the whole time, uh, you know, this is, one may say, almost an inevitable result of this. That there's going to be somebody out there who uh, thinks, well, I've kind of got the uh, agreement of the, pre- I've got the approval of the president to uh, 
send off these pipe bombs uh, and so on. And for him to turn around and preach unity at this point, uh, really, it would beg a belief, except we've had uh, plenty of beggaring of beliefs uh, over the last couple of years. Joy, does that square with you? Uh, Trump's political rhetoric, rhetoric can be directly to blame in some sense. Well, I'm so, so I, I mean, the one I was surprised about was uh, Robert De Niro. And I thought, mm. what's Robert De Niro done other than being kind of a good Democrat? And then the quote comes through, oh, yes, he's a person of very low IQ. A very low IQ individual is what Trump calls him. And this seems to be a target enough for it. What is interesting is the way he hasn't framed it. So Bill de Blasio, the mayor of New York, has now called this an act of terror. Uh, You've had parcel bombs going to two former presidents, the United States. And this is an incredibly serious uh, matter. And Trump has not understood it in that kind of broader political context of an attack on the institution's mm. democracy. He's brought it again back to this question of how he and the press interact. And it's actually about him in some way or another and about a dysfunctioning media. Um, it clearly is not. The language mm. of the leader is what then sets the tone for the nation. Yeah, and this has become just an excuse mm. for him uh, after the initial you know, unity call uh, to let's have another bash at CNN right. uh, and the rest. So in a sense... <laughs> That is almost exacerbating the whole problem which was there in the first place. Is this in some way a criminal incitement for people to go out and commit violence, masked as a sort of a right to free speech? Not not directly, but, you know, you can say the whole uh, narrative of Mm. Trump ever since he started campaigning, indeed, is one which those who might be thinking of violence and going to it, you know, are likely to find encouragement mm. there, I think. And he, he can't really gain say that. And indeed, he probably doesn't want to, mm. because, uh, as you rightly said, in the uh, atmosphere before the midterm elections, uh, and as you can see from his rallies uh, over the last week or so, uh, he's, you know, he wants to stoke everything up mm. there. And of course, this has that effect. Uh, okay, you can say no one was actually hurt or killed uh, yeah. by this, but that doesn't make it any less of a benign uh, development. What do you think of what Joy mentioned there before about this being classified then as terrorism? It's obviously politically motivated. Yes, I mean, it is. This is, is, Mm. if you send a bomb to someone, that, in my mind, is terrorism. Uh, But uh, Trump doesn't see it as that. Mm. He sees it, in a sense, it's almost, if I read right, his reaction is almost saying, well, this is what CNN and the others get for uh, peddling... Mm. uh, quote, fake news against me. In a sense, Joy, you know, in America, it's a little bit different with cable news and and how extreme they can be sometimes, Fox News in particular. How much of of the narrative do they have to fix for themselves or for for us, for for people across America? Well, I mean, the, the, the problem with the US is it doesn't have any restrictions on what you can broadcast. It did indeed have mm. uh, what's called fair, fair broadcasting, fair broadcasting yeah. rules, which was stripped back. So each now is sort of trying to fight for their own bit of territory mm. rather than having to all start at the point of truth and then put their relative spin on it. So... They do rely, you would have thought, in fact, they would rely on more sensationalism. They do. Fox does go quite hard. Mm. Um, I, from having watched US news channels, I, mean, I think there's some fairly robust debates that go on, but actually online is still far, far more uh, robust than anything that gets broadcast on the television channels. So Fox can stir things up in on behalf mm. of Trump, but CNN is 
and this is not me just sort of, sort of Democrat <laughs> liberal mindset, they do have a kind of adherence to the, the basic truth. Some so I, the I think, standards. Yeah, yeah, yeah so yeah. I don't think we should go overboard in suggesting mm. that, that the media is, uh, no. that the, broad, the mainstream broadcast media is completely off the wall here. Sure, yeah, but at the risk of sounding terribly old-fashioned, which I'm going to do probably several times in the next uh, half hour or so, um, on some of the other subjects yeah. we're having up <clears throat> there. I mean, the more you get into the online discussion and further and further out in, in that area, the more extreme, obviously, you get. And uh, I think in that, the kind of the Trump rhetoric and the style he's set and the context he's set from the very top, because this is the president speaking. This uh-huh. is not, you know, a tribune standing, somebody standing up on a soapbox, uh, shouting on a Sunday morning and so on. This is the president in the White House and so on. That does caution uh, this kind of extremism, which then shades over, as, as you were saying, into terrorism. And it, you know, it's things like the Ku Klux Klan feeling emboldened, yep. and, the, and tr- Trump's ability to deliver different, diverse messages to different groups of people that makes each one of them feel that they are mm. at that moment beloved by him and will become well, the. And kind what of, he doesn't say, yeah. too. I mean, you know, not for instance saying this is terrorism and yeah. so on and so on, and it, so quickly in all these cases, uh, shifting his rhetoric back to attacking his enemies yeah. and blaming them mm. for everything. Mm. I want to just touch on another uh, Trump headline. Surprise, there, there is another one today. The New York Times reporting he still takes calls uh, from his iPhone despite warning from advisors. These conversations are being monitored by foreign operatives. Interesting statements uh, from China today on that. They say uh, that this can only they can only hope that he doesn't discuss state secrets on his mobile phone. Uh, that's the White House saying that. Joy, uh, it would be great if China China yeah, said that. They show, well. show a sense of irony <laughs> yeah. in, their, in their political statements. Uh, would you have any idea of how he could, uh, how they could force him onto the landline? Well, on... they had a lot of trouble trying to get yeah. the BlackBerry off Obama. He yeah, was one of the true. he was one of the uh, yeah. crackberry addicts. How can they force him onto a landline? Well, they've got a special phone for him to tweet on, which mm. I mean, arguably they should confiscate almost immediately because <laughs> it's just you know the, the the world would just be a happier place if he wasn't mm. tweeting. Um, he's going to do what he's going to do, and the kind of great hypocrisy of of you know Hillary having unsecured emails where he's on an unsecure phone and he's been told by the you know the people who actually know how hacking works you shouldn't be doing this mm. uh, he's just going to do what he's going to do um, yeah. the question is of course what he's actually saying on this right. you know when he's chatting to friends from the golf club or somewhere like that does he suddenly drop in oh yeah yeah I'm going to th- I think I'm going to cancel that nuclear treaty and we got or does he just say you know I had a good hole in three today yeah here. exactly yeah. except nobody quite knows what he's going to do or not do and right. there's always yeah. you know I'm not sure he knows what he's going to do so he, he may, may not may, so if, hopefully anybody who's eavesdropping will take everything he actually says with a pinch of salt anyway yeah. um, you know nothing is necessary to be believed until something happens yeah. it's always interesting in the, this, this question um, to think of you know what the listener is actually how the yeah. listener is reacting you know how the Chinese uh, hacker or the Russian hacker and so on you know hears something from Trump do they suddenly say my that's World War 3 and yeah. note it down or do they say there he goes again yeah there he goes again I think <laughs> if, they're, if they're in any way wise well perhaps uh, the next New York Times editorial, uh, anonymous editorial will be uh, about how they took Trump's phones away. We'll see. Uh, we turn our attention now to uh, ever-souring relations between Taiwan and China. China's defense minister is warning any attempt to 
challenge its authority over Taiwan would be, quote, extremely dangerous. This as the U.S. has signaled greater support for the democratically run island claimed by Beijing. The speech at a regional military forum also came just days after the U.S. Navy sailed two warships through the Taiwan Strait, the second show of military support since July. Uh, Jonathan, perhaps we'll start with you here. The Chinese are telling Washington to drop their, quote, Cold War mentality here. What do they mean by that? Well, this is broadening out from the trade fight, the Mm. fight over tariffs, which uh, Trump held off for his first year or so in the White House, but then went into this year. And um, we've had more than $250 billion uh, in Chinese imports into the States, uh, subject to duties with as many as much uh, to follow. But (coughs) what's been interesting in uh, the recent weeks is how this has broadened out into a much wider strategic uh, and political and military confrontation. And Taiwan has got dragged into that, which is not something that the Taiwanese government uh, wants at all. I mean, if you remember early on, um, Trump was uh, took a call from the president uh, of Taiwan. This caused great excitement uh, over whether he was undoing the one China policy uh, agreed between the states. Uh, and, and Beijing, um, and he pulled back to the one China policy. But uh, Taiwan was highlighted by Vice President Pence in a broad brush uh, attack on China that he launched a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Taiwan is in this, mm. and uh, the danger for Taiwan, which is always on a knife edge, given that China claims the right to use force to uh, reunite it uh, with the mainland, the problem for Taiwan is really not being being caught up in this fight between uh, Trump and Mm. Xi Jinping's China. Uh, Really interesting uh, there. Uh, Joy, China and the U.S. have sort of gone back and forth a lot on this, but they've also time and again said that they need to work together strategically. So interesting, uh, this warning to you then? Um, Well, the question, I mean, I think the question is interesting as to why do it, because Mm. as you say, Taiwan is caught in the centre. And as I understand it, there's a sort of let sleeping dogs lie policy going, which is there's never been any formal understanding uh, uh, about Taiwan's status or any formal understandings have been quietly buried so they can actually just get on with the business of Mm. trading with each other, doing business. Um, So Trump's act of provocation it's it's almost so that, that uh, he seems to want to kind of drive wedges into the Chinese society and Chinese authority. But he, I think he's going to end up having almost the kind of counter effect at this point in time where uh, Asia begins to say, well, why is this man trying to mess up a perfectly functional situation? Right. Neither side wants to have a fight. Neither mm. of the two people actually invested in this want to have a fight. Um, why why send warships down the central straits? Uh, it, it reminds me of... The, there was a Bond film, wasn't there, where... Um, uh, there's a sort of Murdoch figure who tries to start a war in the chi- uh, yeah. South China Sea yeah. in order just to get the headlines. Mm. Yeah. And you're sitting there saying this is just I mean, an act of provocation well, along those him. lines. Give me the war yeah. and I'll give you the headlines. Yes. Yeah, and so on. And, yeah, and, I mean, and Trump would love the headline, obviously. Indeed, indeed. Now, I mean, Taiwan, the US and, and China, ever since Nixon and Kissinger agreed basically not to agree. You know, they had a formula where they both agreed, China and America, that there was only one China, but they didn't define what that one China uh, was. Um, but really, I, I think we we passed some kind of uh, watershed with Trump sometime this summer uh, when he decided basically that he was going to take on China. Uh, And on the trade front to begin with, 
the, the Treasury in Washington worked out arrangements with the Chinese for a new trade accord and so on. But as soon as that was worked out by the Treasury, Trump vetoed it and so on. He vetoed other uh, agreements and so on. Uh, the Chinese don't know who to talk to uh, in Washington. All their old interlocutors uh, don't seem to be uh, come up with the goods uh, at all. Uh, Xi Jinping and Trump may meet again at the G20 mm-hmm. meeting in a month's time uh, or so. But really, uh, they're a long way apart at the moment. And this is having its repercussions all across uh, the, the, the relationship, including Taiwan. On that point, does this have a, a big impact on how uh, other countries are supporting or dealing with Taiwan? Uh, yeah, t- with Taiwan and with mm. China, mm. indeed. I mean, you've got uh, the Japanese Prime Minister Abe, uh, who's in Beijing today. He's arrived uh, for a visit. And Japanese business is very keen to do deals with the Chinese. The mm. Chinese are very keen, faced with Trump's trade offensive, to build up uh, trading alliances with uh, regional powers, mm. and if they could, with Europe and so on. Um, the question for Japan is whether it can have... Um, uh, a developing business relationship with China, which has gone through a lot of tensions in the past, while remaining a treaty ally of the United States. So there's quite a complicated game going right. on uh, in East Asia at the moment. Uh, Joy, beyond uh, the headlines and, and rhetoric over uh, warships and, and Taiwan, uh, how much does this affect uh, the U.S.'s uh, relationship with Beijing over trade and how important that is well, right I th- now? I think Jonathan's point is quite interesting yeah. because there does come a point when the loyalties or, you know, even half loyalties elsewhere begin to deepen. If you're Mm. dealing with somebody who's so erratic, who looks like they're still going to have a a pretty good majority, at least, uh, in the Senate after the midterms, Mm. who is still being touted as being a two-term president, you sit there thinking, well, actually, maybe it is time to actually start looking elsewhere. Now, you know, the EU and China are are humming along relatively Mm. well together. Um, Japan can actually look in various different directions. Uh, They're keeping these sort of global shudders in in the markets at the moment, which often are emanating from China. But in fact, that may indeed be a form of, forms of correction where they are beginning to look to different markets, beginning mm. to see Trump is so unstable, there's some earthquakes going through. Mm. And what happens when the capital starts flooding back in is potentially reinvestments that are coming a little bit away from the US into other places. Now, the US stock market's been absolutely through the roof for mm. ever since Trump took over. But when, you know, once the capital withdrawn from the market, you then begin to have to make strategic decisions about where you put it back in again. Mm. And we'll wait and see what happens there. And you get this broader question of whether you will have the emergence of, let's say, an East Asian trading bloc with China, Japan, South Korea, and the ASEAN countries, uh, which are pretty important there, you know, in a sense, dive, moving away from the dependence on the United States. Mm. And interestingly, Xi Jinping, the Chinese leader, has been making a big thing over the last weeks of the need to build up, quote, self-reliance, by which he means in food and above all in technology, because China is still pretty dependent on the US for technology, and they would love to have a better supply chain coming in on high-tech goods Mm. from Japan and South Korea, particularly. But all that is, you know, long-term thinking, subject to the uncertainties, as Joy says, uh, of Trump and where you go with him. Uh, But Japan doesn't want to, you know, cut the link with the United States, which right. it's had since 1945. So 
uh, Abe is, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's paddling in rather uncertain waters at mm. the moment. Very interesting uh, to watch. You are listening to Midori House here with me, Daniel Bates, Joy Ladico, and Jonathan Fenby. Coming up next, one of Berlin's coolest neighborhoods says no thank you to Google. Russia is a large and unwieldy beast, but in recent decades it's been tamed by President Vladimir Putin, who's deftly tightened his grip on power. To find more about where Russia finds itself today, from its soft power to its economy, watch our animated nation survey, playing now in the film section at monocle.com. Welcome back. You are listening to Midori House with me, Daniel Bage. Still with me, Jonathan Fenby and Joy Ladico. Let's continue to Berlin next. Google has just announced it has decided to drop plans to open a large campus in the city's Kreuzberg neighborhood. This follows wide protests by locals who are worried about gentrification and are also unhappy about Google's so-called evil practices such as tax evasion and the unethical use of personal data. Cities keen to attract large tech companies on one side, which bring big investments and jobs, and those companies need to appeal to employees as well. So hip and central neighborhoods are a good bet when looking to set up shop. Uh, Is it surprising then, Joy, uh, they can't uh, always buy their way in? Uh, Well, Berlin is a particularly difficult Mm. city to buy your way into. I mean, it's been historically inhabited by uh, people who are refuseniks of some sort. West Berlin was where you you moved to if you didn't want to... uh, do national service for mm. West Germany. Uh, East Berlin has had, you know, were the, the first people to sort of tear down the wall. And then the people who've moved in since over the last uh, nearly 30 years now have been usually kind of artists and writers who have liked the kind of very la- laid back, cheap Berlin lifestyle. Mm. Now, we tend to think of Berlin as the capital of Europe, but in fact, the, the, the you know, nobody there is in a suit and you're looked at with disdain if you actually appear in a business suit there. So I find it not at all surprising. I was having coffee, in fact, with an, a, a, a British artist friend of mine, complete hipster, who has moved to near this uh, um, uh, where Google, Google were hoping to open mm. up. And this was last year. And she was thinking, God, it's just terrible. I mean, the whole area is going to, you know, to pieces because yeah. Google's trying to move in. So you know, that, that it's turned into a formal protest, I'm not particularly surprised. Mm. Yeah, the impact on local neighborhoods and economies is massive when big companies move in. San Francisco this summer issued an ordinance banning private cafeterias in new office buildings. People want to live in San Francisco, not in Silicon Valley, and they're happy for their employer to make them free lunch, I guess. Uh, is that what cities need to do now? And, and maybe even looking at Berlin here again, uh, carefully manage these tech giants when they're, when they're trying to get in? Well, obviously, yes. Yeah. Um, and particularly if you're talking about, you know, Kreuzberg, uh, area of Berlin, mm. which has a long, long history uh, <clears throat> of alternative lifestyle and so on and so on. Um, I, you know, I, 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 this is obviously Google became a target for the people who live there and so on, uh, more or less regardless of what Google did, I would have thought. I mean, it becomes a symbol, doesn't yeah. it? Mm-hmm. Well, also, what we need to be careful of, this is not, we're not talking about Google headquarters here. We're talking yeah. about something called yeah. Google Campus, which what yes. it is, I and mean, I've been to the one in London, it's a space where if you're, uh, they've just rebranded it as Google for startups. It was Google for entrepreneurs. Right, Basically, right. you've got a small company, you're invited in, it's a free space, you get coffee, you get a little bit of training, you make connections. So it's not a kind of, you know, corporate office block in fact was meant to attract 
young techies, but just the name Google was enough to right. repel. Uh, and yeah. they would have had co- coffee shops inside and they would have been sucking the energy from the street into that one location. Mm. So, so how many young techies actually want to live in Kreuzberg, do you think? From my memories of Kreuzberg, it's not the kind of area which was full of lots of, you know, cutting edge young techies. Well, uh, I mean, <laughs> it, you know, the thing is about Berlin is the cool district keeps on mm. changing. Of course. Um, you know, round and round as and round again. As, but the, they they did have big rent uh, rises in Kreuzberg in particular last yep. year. There was a point when Berlin took rent caps off and it all just went through the roof. Mm. And it yep. got to the point when the artist couldn't afford it, but the techie probably could, or the semi-successful techie could, yep. at which point that does change the nature of the, the uh, uh, place very, very quickly. Having said that, Berlin does feel perhaps kind of, you know, a very slow city compared to the pace of something mm. like London or Paris. Mm. And it's always surprising to meet that. Uh, should it be preserved? Probably, yeah. Mm. yeah. But you're going to get the gentrification issue and problem anywhere in cities. You know, I think as they as they develop, as they grow richer, and as people want to live, move into areas which are, rel- despite what Joy just said, relatively affordable to begin with, but yeah. which they make often very unaffordable. I think people there perhaps maybe they have an eye on Shoreditch or Williamsburg in Brooklyn where yeah. it becomes completely out of reach and transforms Absolutely. the whole the whole you know feel of the neighborhood. I just want to lastly touch on uh, the idea that perhaps Google played this well, graceful in defeat because the building will now go to two charities if they play their cards it's just, right. It's it's, it's a delightful <laughs> irony that in fact they've actually yeah, yeah, it's yeah, very good, good PR but they've actually PR, had to do right, something yeah. for uh, it's an online donation platform mm. and, a, and a children's charity they've had to give the yeah. space over to uh, damn it they can afford it yeah. uh, you know one of the great complaints about Google is the amount of tax it does not pay no. through uh, various uh, efficiencies uh, in its uh, global kind of tax uh, manoeuvring system so to actually uh, spend, spend a little money on the street looking after other mm. people I think will be um, appreciated if somewhat cynically but it will be appreciated yeah. Finally today, it seems a number of music acts will have to reconsider their performances next summer, as in Finsbury Park, North London, a local council has ruled that those performing at the Wireless Festival in July will be banned from swearing on stage, neither... Will they be allowed to include vulgar or or obscene lyrics in their performances? And there will also be a dress code for performers as well. Definitely no revealing attire, apparently. The ruling uh, follows calls from a local group of residents to move the music festival elsewhere. They've been complaining about noise levels and antisocial behavior at the festival in past. The ruling believed to be the first of its kind, in fact, in Britain, a place where uh, there are all kinds of issues with music festivals. There's so many of them now. Uh, Jonathan, what do you think about this? this proposed uh, ban on swearing. Well, I'm going to take a rather cons- a conservative view here mm. that I think there, there is the question of if there's a music festival, if there's an artistic festival, yeah, fine, let it go ahead, mm. let it push out the boundaries and so on and so on. But when it's bang in the middle of a residential area mm. and disrupts life for all those living around it who are not necessarily participants or supporters or enthusiastic for the festival itself, mm. I think you do have a, a, a 
genuine problem mm. there. This is not censorship as such, but this yeah. is simply that, you know, we tend to say, yes, those pushing the artistic boundaries should have complete license, should be able to do anything they like, wherever they like, whenever they like, and so on and so on. I don't think that's really the case. Um, I, I, the area in London, I mean, it's not quite Kreuzberg, but it is one of the hipper <laughs> yeah, well, areas of London. And I think a lot of the people who moved there originally moved there because there was decent nice nightlife or they were near the Shoreditch areas. And so there's a certain irony that wireless moves there to pick up the, that particular right. audience mm. and can't get it through. The other person, it should be noted, I'm not sure if he's one of the formal complainants of this, but he certainly was one of the people who signed a letter, was Jeremy Corbyn, the leader of the Labour Party. Uh, it was at the height of the anti-Semitism scandal. Yeah. Everybody was trying to draw a comment on him on anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. They couldn't get one. But uh, somebody dug out the fact he'd actually responded to the local council and written a complaint about <laughs> the wireless festival. Of he was looking things. after his constituents <laughs> and, and his votes. Oh, Yes, not many of the performers would have been voting. Well, interesting. In here, the director of the, the group that's lodged the complaint has has said uh, officially uh, swearing wasn't the exact issue because no one actually said that in the complaints, but they've played that up, which is interesting. Um, I think there was somebody yeah. complaining that the word mother asterisk 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 yeah, was right. arriving on their dining table yeah, as they were yeah. putting their, you know, <laughs> supper down for the kids. Yeah. Yeah. What you do, of course, if, if somebody does appear on the stage mm. at the next festival and does say mother whatever it may be or anything else I mean d- 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 does somebody pull the switch mm. uh, the switch I don't know how you yeah, actually how do, implement how do, uh, how do artists it's react to this to, are they going to uh, but I quite like the yeah. idea that you know we keep talking about morality in this country we're going to seem to be going back to a Victorian era, era mm. that everybody has to be dressed up properly to go on stage like kind of 1950s you know music <laughs> dance show before <laughs> Elvis love, love before Elvis that, arrives yes, with his yeah. hips <laughs> wiggling a little bit exactly. too wildly <laughs> you know ladies dropping their hankies in horror well, I can remember going to see Bill Haley and the Comets at the Birmingham Hippodrome in the 1950s, and everybody was absolutely scandalised when he waved, <laughs> waggled his hips and goose-stepped across the, the stage. Goose-stepping. Well, sorry, no, 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 no. duck-stepping. Duck-stepping. Duck it was a bad Chuck Berry imitation. <laughs> it sounds more entertaining to me than this festival in Finsbury Park, but uh, uh, I wonder how performers act, uh, you know, in response to this. Are they, are they going to care? Are they going to, you know, have a laugh at it, perhaps? Um, well, I think that. Well, I, I think being asked to kind of clean up your lyrics when mm. you're in, there'll be a load of kind of teenagers, sort of, yeah. g- kind of, or, or kind of, sort of. Uh, go uh, for it. Go let's for hear, it. Come on, let's do the thing. Having said that, I did go through a little phase of going to uh, late night clubs uh, a couple of years ago for various particular reasons, and I kept finding all these very clean. <laughs> we <won't ask. laughs> well, these very clean cut kids in, you know, in jeans holding one beer at midnight, not not looking at all uh, like my generation who went clubbing did and I began to wonder whether this particular I think this is Generation Z in fact aren't expecting this mm. really very violent stage performance they're quite happy with a couple of kids on decks and just swaying gently <laughs> that maybe Stormzy and co are overplaying it <laughs> <laughs> well we shall see how uh, everyone acts this summer at uh, all the big music festivals across this country that does bring us however to the end of today's show Joy Ladico and Jonathan Fenby thank you very much for joining us here at Midori House today's show produced by Marcus Hippie researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Barbara Mamone, our studio manager, Cassie Galpin. Midori House back at the same time tomorrow. That's 1800 London time. I'm Daniel Bates. Thank you so much for listening and goodbye. 